I so appreciate our worship teams and the way they help set the table for my worship and for my, in this case, preaching. Let me take us to the Lord one more time before we plunge in. Father, thank you for this opportunity to explore your word, to learn from it, to hear you speak to us. And I ask that you would do just that. By the power of your spirit, you would empower what I say and what everyone hears, and that anything that is of benefit would take root and bear fruit, and anything that is not would be quickly forgotten, and that we would draw closer to you and glorify you more as a result of what is said and what you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of John, verse 5 of chapter 1, says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've learned something about spiritual darkness in our day, both by direct observation in many cases, and also by attending to the experiences of others who live in even darker places than our own. As Jesus walked to the cross, he encountered deep darkness as well, maybe deeper than anything we've ever experienced. And yet through it all, his light shone undiminished. In last week's study of Mark 14, Kenny, uh, 32 through 42, Kenny explored how even as Jesus struggled with the dark prospect of the Father's abandonment, he continued to show forth God's glory. Today, as we continue in March 14, 43 through 65, We'll see how the glory of Jesus continues to be displayed as he encounters the darkness of human sin and failure. As we examine the darkness that Jesus faced, we'll see that it is not so different from the darkness that we face today. And as we look at Jesus, we'll see an example of how we can show forth his glory even in such a day as this. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Mark chapter 14 and so you can follow along as I'll be reading. To remind us of the context of this passage, I'll begin reading in verse 41. Jesus has been praying fervently for the Father's cup to pass from him while his disciples have been struggling and failing to stay awake. Jesus' battle is over. And he's accepted the Father's cup, and now he rouses his disciples to face with him what the Father has in store. So we're reading Mark 14, 41 through 65. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking a rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out again as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
but let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The darkness that permeates this passage takes five different forms. Betrayal, ineffective defense, abandonment, injustice, and abuse. The darkness of betrayal is clearly displayed in verses 43 through 46. A familiar passage where we read about Judas coming, one of the twelve. Notice how Paul emphasizes, I mean Mark emphasizes this. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The whole gamut of the Jewish leadership is represented. You'll find here the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. All the different groups are part of this, the arrest of Jesus. And we're told that the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man, a kiss of all things. And, told, and he says, seize him and lead him away under guard. I'm not going to let this man escape from us. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, a sign of honor. And he kissed him. Well, Jesus saw this coming, and he clearly announced it. It must have been a horrific shock to the disciples and to realize that Judas was the betrayer. John tells us that Jesus had told Peter and John that the one that he handed the piece of bread to was going to betray him. A few verses later in the Gospel of John, um, he also says that no one knew why Judas had left the meal. If anything, they thought that he was going out to purchase supplies for the Passover meal. So to hear Jesus announce that his betrayer had arrived, and to see Judas, one of the twelve, Arriving at that moment with a detachment of soldiers sent from the Jewish leaders must have been the shock of the disciples' lives. It can be hard for us to relate to this shock because we know the story. We've been told by Mark that Judas was the traitor. 
When we hear Judas' name mentioned, it's almost as if there's a soundtrack running in the background that plays, you know, the Empire theme from Star Wars. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, that's the kind of feel you get when you hear Judas' name and you hear Darth Vader's vo voice, you know, breath through the ventilator kind of thing. I mean, but that wasn't the case. They didn't have a soundtrack in Gethsemane. This was their real life. And it was Judas, one of them, who was who Jesus was calling his betrayer. Judas, whom Jesus had sent out with the rest of them to preach the gospel in the surrounding villages, who had cast out demons with them, who had shared with them in the feeding of the multitudes with a few fish, who had gathered with them to hear Jesus' teachings. Of course, Jesus had told them that one of the disciples would betray him, but he had also <laughs> said that Peter would deny him three times. Wasn't that the betrayal Jesus was talking about? It couldn't be Judas, who occupied the trusted position of treasurer for their small group. So to see Judas appear, not with Passover supplies, but with soldiers who were preparing to arrest Jesus, it must have been a shattering experience for them. In one horrible moment, it became obvious that Judas had aligned himself with the religious establishment with the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Pharisees, all of whom hated Jesus. Judas, who once proclaimed with Jesus the arrival of the kingdom of God, had now agreed with Jesus' enemies that the best thing to do was to take Jesus by force and put him on trial. So he kissed Jesus, and he called him rabbi. What once were the natural actions of a disciple of a beloved and honored master had become a grotesque horror the betrayal of the sinless Son of God by one of those closest to him, the culmination of Judas' treachery as he delivers Jesus into the hands of those who had come, who had been sent to arrest him. Dark indeed is this moment in human history. After the darkness of betrayal, we see the darkness of ineffective defense. As Mark reports, they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by, we're told it was Peter by um, John, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now forces, when they were sent by Jesus, the, one of the disciples at least, raised a defense. He took one of the swords that Jesus had told them to purchase, according to Luke, and struck out. Well... <laughs> One could say he struck out in both senses of the word. He struck the high priest and servant and got an ear, and he struck out as far as Jesus' defense was concerned. Two swords were scarcely enough against the force that they faced, and the disciples were scarcely competent to wield them. We learn from John that all Peter accomplished was to slice off a piece of the ear of the high priest's servant. But even had they been much better swordsmen than they were, the problem with such a defense is not only that it was doomed to fail against Judas' far larger force, but that it said exactly the wrong thing about Jesus, whom they were defending. Had they been left to continue fighting with, until their inevitable defeat, all that would have been said is that Jesus was a lousy revolutionary and that he was crucified because of his own bad judgment in having such an inept army. Jesus made sure that no such conclusion could be drawn by healing the servant, as Luke reports, and as Matthew reports, telling the disciples to stop 
Because had he wanted to defend himself this way, the Father would have given him more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus was arrested not because he was incapable of defending himself, but because it was the fulfillment of Scripture. And had the disciples paid a little more attention to all that he had been teaching them about his upcoming betrayal and death, they might have avoided so futilely attempting to do what Jesus clearly did not want. When confronted by the ineptness of their defense of Jesus, the disciples added to the darkness by abandoning him. In verses 50 through 52, we read, They all left him and fled. And a young man, we don't know his name, might have been Mark, followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The disciples lost their nerve, plain and simple. All the wind was taken out of their sails when Jesus stopped their ill-advised resistance and declared that his arrest had to happen in fulfillment of Scripture. Seeing nothing else they could do, they fled. One young man, when seized by the soldiers, was so terrified of what the soldiers might do to him that he left only his only clothing in their hands and fled naked into the night. A preferred humiliation over the risks of staying with Jesus, and he was left all alone before his captors. The disciples, having darkened Jesus' path by betraying him, ineffectively defending him, and abandoning him, it was now the turn of the Jewish leaders to further darken his path. First, through injustice, as we read in the following section. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. We notice that Peter hasn't completely abandoned Jesus, but this is just prologue. Next week we'll find out what we already know, that his denial comes a little later. But it does come. We know the story. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Interesting trial, this. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Minor detail here. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. Those kinds of minor details matter a lot in capital trials. So yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up. You can just hear his exasperation in this, in their midst, and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is really irregular to be have a prisoner be required to give defense his own testimony in the midst of a trial like this. But Jesus answers and says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments, sort of a ritual declaration. It's hard to say how angry he really is. More relieved might be the word. But he tore his garments as a ritual declaration that we have seen blasphemy. That's what he says. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. 
What is your decision? And they all condemned him as, deter as deserving death. You see, in this, this trial is rather odd. Rather than seeking to determine if Jesus is guilty, they begin convinced of his guilt and then looking for evidence to prove it. We obviously have here is a show trial. The crime was blasphemy. Jesus' guilt had already been decided on. And the death penalty was to be the outcome. Nothing less would do. All that remained to be done was to find the needed witnesses to actually testify to the crime. That's normally where you start, but in this case, that's all they actually needed to do. Two witnesses were required to agree on the nature of the blasphemy in order for a conviction to be secured, but this proved to be unexpectedly difficult. Jesus offered them no help either as he stood there silently, allowing them to demonstrate by their failure to agree that he had not really said anything blasphemous. What he had done was to make himself an intolerable nuisance to the religious establishment, calling them hypocrites, tearing down their carefully built fences around the law, exposing their doctrinal inconsistencies, and thoroughly undermining their carefully built up social and political status. If this wasn't blasphemy, it was close enough in the eyes of the Jewish leaders and that they were going to secure a conviction even if they had to drag it out of Jesus himself. And that's what they did. When they had totally failed to get two witnesses to actually agree that Jesus had said something blasphemous, the high priest then turned to Jesus and demanded that he say something that they could agree was blasphemy. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, was his question. Apart from the fact that the accused is not supposed to be required to testify himself in a death penalty case, this question was really a stroke of genius because it was one that Jesus was ready to answer in the affirmative. Up until this point, he had been pretty reticent about him being the Christ. And when people drew that conclusion, he told them to keep silent. But now was no longer a time for silence. He was prepared to say explicitly that the Christ, he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, and what's more, he was prepared to identify himself as the one whom David spoke, of whom David spoke, who was like a son of man, and who would stand before the Ancient of Days and receive from him eternal dominion over all creation. As far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, uh, this was enough for a conviction of blasphemy. But actually, it's rather difficult to figure out what in Jesus' statement was blasphemous. He didn't use God's name in vain, nor did he slander God. But the real, claim, the real thing that the Pharisees had against him was that Jesus was making a claim here that, if true, fully justified all the intolerable things that he had said about them up to that point. And that they would not endure. This upstart, with no certification from any of the approved rabbis, this thorn in our side, this guy from Nazareth of all places, could not be the, son, the Christ, the son of the blessed. And for him to say so, it's clearly absurd. So blasphemy it is. With the help of a rigged trial, with false witnesses, 
and illegal cross-examination techniques, the Jewish leaders had managed to convict the only truly and completely innocent man in all history of the death penalty for a crime that he didn't commit. Uh, ugliest show trial that the world had yet seen to that point had delivered its intended purpose and added to the dark stain on Jesus Road. And with the conviction came abuse. As we read in verse 65, some began to spit on Jesus. And they covered his face and struck him, saying to him, prophesy. Ha. They're mocking him, of course. And the guards received him with blows. Having obtained the death sentence they intended and demanded, the abuse now begins. It was not to end until Jesus died. While the Jewish leadership couldn't legally impose a death penalty, which is a right the Romans reserved to themselves, they could vent their scorn on him, and this they did eloquently and vigorously. So as Luke reports Jesus saying to those who arrested him, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And that power was unleashed in all its fury. But in that hour of darkness, Jesus still shines. He shines his light by faithfully enduring the abuse and by illuminating the darkness of his adversaries. We see his glory as he speaks of inconvenient truths, as he submits to God's plan, as he keeps silent in the face of false accusations and testifies of the truth before those who condemn him. So rather by casting invective on Judas for his betrayal, even though that would have been a very understandable behavior and one we probably ourselves would have been very tempted to employ, and rather than defending himself against those who have come to arrest him, Jesus showed his glory by speaking inconvenient truths to these people. His question, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? highlights the absurdity of what they're doing. Jesus never carried arms. He never preached armed rebellion. He never did anything that bore the slightest resemblance to raising up rebellion against Caesar. The worst thing he said was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God's. That's it. So an armed rebel was the last thing Jesus was and yet they come as though they were addressing an armed rebel. Very odd, very strange. And then he comments, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Again, we look at the behavior and say, why? If Jesus was as dangerous as their behavior seemed to indicate, why did they leave him at large so long? Why was he free to preach in the temple for so many days, building up, as they might, claimed, a um, force against the establishment, you know, developing public opinion, cultivating a military force to achieve a takeover. Why did they leave him free to do these things? And they betray by the very questions that this was not their reason for arresting Jesus at all, that their motives were false, that their behavior did not justify their actual intent or purposes. He shows them up as hypocrites by what they say and what they do. 
simply by a question and a statement. Rather than seeking to evade arrest, Jesus then displayed his glory by submitting to God's plan. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. So we saw in Kenny's sermon last week, Jesus had fought and won that battle in Gethsemane. Not what I will, but what you will, was his prayer. And he saw that the will of God was spelled out for him in scripture. Jesus' word to the disciples, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, is from Zechariah 13:7. His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver was anticipated in Zechariah 11:12 through 14. And that it was to be a friend who betrayed him was depicted in Psalms 41:9 and 55:13. And if we turn to Isaiah 53, which I invite you to do, we can read in that passage about the abuse that Jesus would suffer, as well as the victory that would be his. Isaiah 53, I'll read the whole chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, all, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Amazing, isn't it? And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a witch man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus saw the path set before him in Scripture. Both its pain and its suffering, and there's plenty of that depicted here and elsewhere in many other passages, and he saw its reward as given to us here as well. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
As Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, he walked the path of his suffering and his trials in anticipation of the joy that was set before him, the joy that was promised to him, the joy that he saw in Scripture. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. So when Jesus was brought to the trial before his Jewish, the, the Jewish leaders, he showed his glory as he kept silent before his accusers, just as was anticipated in Isaiah 53, as we were reading. This silence of Jesus was his judgment upon the whole proceedings. Essentially, as he had called them in the past, whitewashed tombs. So this trial was a whitewashed tomb of a trial. It had the external attractiveness and appearance of all the decor. There were witnesses, there was a verdict, there was everything that one would superficially hope for from a trial, but inside were dead man's bones. Inside was death. And he knew that. By refusing to engage the false witnesses which were brought before him, Jesus allowed his accusers to demonstrate that there was no real case against him. Had there been a case, two witnesses would have been brought forward to make the case. The conviction would have been secured and it would have been over. But as each, each false witness brought his testimony and failed yet again to agree with what was said before, the emptiness of the case against Jesus became increasingly evident and the hardness of heart of Jesus' adversaries became ever more visible. For those, that is, who were willing to see. Finally, in utter frustration, the high priest asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent still because there was nothing to say. The trial spoke for itself. But Jesus, Jesus did speak out once at the end. Not to defend himself. Not to point out that the witnesses arrayed against him were false. Not to refute any of their testimony. Nor to point out that judicial procedure was being violated at every turn in this mockery of a trial but to forthrightly identify himself for the first time before the Jewish leadership. Up until now, he'd kept silent. He had no intention of raising a crowd to crown him Messiah before the time had come, and now the time had indeed come. Jesus testified to who he was now and in this place because it was the truth and because it was necessary for the Jewish leadership to be directly confronted with the claim. They had seen enough evidence to know in their hearts that Jesus was the Christ. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. Indeed, they knew enough that, as John reported, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, rather than be astonished at what an awesome miracle had just been performed, or humbled, before his power and his majesty, they were enraged and decided among themselves that they now had to kill both Jesus and <coughs> Lazarus because too many people were following after them. The leaders knew that if Jesus answered the question posed to them, and according to Matthew and Luke, they put him under an oath that required that he answer, that it would be in the affirmative, and they already knew in their hearts that the answer was true, but they could not abide it. 
Jesus knew this and spoke not to persuade them, but to make their rebellion starkly clear and to move the process forward as the Father had willed and the scripture had foretold towards his death and resurrection. And that is what he accomplished. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now Jesus encounters darkness today in many of the same ways he encountered it then. The body of Christ experiences betrayal, ineffective defense, abandonment, injustice, and abuse today as well. It should come as no surprise, really, as Jesus warned us that the pupil is not greater than the master and that we should expect nothing different than what he himself experienced. But Jesus is betrayed today when someone who calls himself a believer wants something from an enemy of the church more than he wants to be loyal to Jesus. Judas, John tells us, was a thief and apparently wanted the money that the Pharisees offered more than he wanted to be loyal to Jesus. Today, there are people in the church who want political power, academic prestige, wealth, peace with their neighbors, somebody to marry, a divorce, sexual pleasure, and many, many other things that they want more than they want to be loyal to Jesus. So they go to whoever offered these things and say, what will you give me if I join you and reject Jesus? And then they turn on the church they once owned and reject it as intolerant, hypocritical, unscientific, antiquated, and legalistic. And the world looks on and laughs. Jesus suffers from ineffective defense when believers attempt to defend him in ways that contradict his teachings. Just as the disciples attempted to use the same methods to defend Jesus that Judas used to have him arrested, so ineffective defense is often driven by the same desires that drive betrayal. Rather than abandoning Jesus because the world offers what we want, we remake Jesus into someone who offers the same political power, the same academic prestige, the same wealth, the same marriage, the same divorces the world offers. Name it and claim it preachers are among the prominent practitioners of this gospel. The prosperity gospel that we hear. Those who offer secret codes in the Bible to give you this inside clue, inside track into that all the academics have missed, they offer you this. Those who want to justify sin by asserting that God wants me to be happy. Yes, and they remake the gospel. And so many other voices that claim allegiance to Jesus while corrupting his message. Jesus has not been rejected exactly. Instead, he's been remade into something quite congenial to the teachings of the world. And believers abandon Jesus when we fail to speak and act in his defense. Sometimes we know of no other defense to offer, or the sheer shock silences us. Other times, many times, I think, the fear of personal harm, humiliation, or loss will cause us to lose our nerve and say nothing. In either case, the enemies of Jesus are left unopposed, free to act against the church, and darkness has its way. And when these enemies are unopposed, 
they will often today treat people unjustly. They see the threat that the church presents to the kind of society that they want, and they will use whatever legal resources are at their disposal to oppose or destroy it. They recognize how the church's stubborn defense of traditional morality threatens modern toleration and tolerance and makes good people feel guilty. They see how its insistent belief in a sovereign God and a resurrected Lord make it impossible to escape the supernatural. And they hate how we refuse to bow down before the reigning scientism of the day and accept with them that all things arose from chance events and have no meaning except that which we impose upon them. They see how Christianity, with its stubborn insistence that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, is utterly incompatible with the multiculturalism that tries to put Jesus on the God shelf with all the other gods and lords that the world wants us to worship. They see beyond question that if Christianity were to prevail, that all of the modern social revolution that they have worked so long and hard to achieve would utterly crumble. And they judge that it is better for one religion to die than that the society that they long for to be destroyed. And they will mobilize whatever false witnesses and organize whatever mock trials are necessary to see the church condemned to death in the public square. And still other enemies of Jesus will simply use abuse to oppress or destroy the church. In some countries, this takes the form of imprisonment, torture, and beheadings. In others, it's Twitter storms, mockery, and discrimination. Sometimes the abuse happens within the church and churches divide over insignificant items or church leaders exert their power in harsh and domineering ways or people use gossip or manipulation to tear one another down. However it happens, the damage is immense, the church is wounded, and the darkness in which we live becomes deeper. So it's really easy to see the darkness we don't have to look hard to find it. But the question that then presses on us is, what do we do about it? It's how do we live so as not to be overcome by it? The first thing to ask ourselves is if we are participating in that darkness. Am I doing something to betray, ineffectually defend, abandon, treat unjustly, or abuse Jesus? Have I decided that I want something that Jesus isn't given me? And am I willing to turn my back on him to get it? Or am I willing to rewrite the gospel to make Jesus into someone who gives me what I want when I want it? Am I keeping silent and hiding because I fear the consequences of speaking up and don't know what to say? Or am I willing to attack believers because they threaten something I want, whether by sly, underhanded means or in direct frontal assault? If you or I are doing any of these things, then we are part of the darkness that oppresses the church, and our first responsibility is to repent. This is what the Apostle Paul had to do when he encountered the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Once a persecutor who employed both injustice and abuse against the church, Paul turned away from it all after he met Jesus and discovered that by attacking the church, he was attacking his Lord. Once a proud defender of his Jewish heritage against the infant church, Paul found it all to be trash in the light of what Jesus offered. As he said in Philippians 3, 4 through 11, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It was by gazing on the risen Lord and seeing how everything else was dwarfed in comparison that Paul was changed from being a major contributor to the darkness of the early, that the early church endured to a shining example of what it means to walk in the light of Jesus. If we have become a part of the darkness, we, like Paul, must gaze upon the risen Lord. We must realize that nothing in all the world surpasses him. And that compared with the privilege of knowing him, of becoming like him in his death and attaining to the resurrection, that all the perks that the world offers are dust and ashes. We must allow him to, to kill our desire to remake him for our own purposes and to teach us to speak out and to, to act rightly as true witnesses of his character and his work and his purposes. When we have gazed upon the Lord, we must also then gaze upon him as he walks in Gethsemane, as he is arrested and tried, because we can learn some things from him about how to walk well in the darkness that the church encounters today. First, Consider responding to unjust treatment with questions or statements of fact that indirectly highlight the injustice. Rather than directly objecting to Judas' betrayal or the use of force against him, which would only arouse the defensive reaction in the crowd, Jesus highlighted the absurdity of their treatment of him with a question, have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And he pointed out the true motives behind their arrest. In the same way, when hostility is being directed against Christians, we may be able to use questions and observations to highlight the absurdity of the attacks in ways that would be less likely to arouse a defensive response in the people that attack us and more likely to provoke an occasion for Christ to speak to the conscience of those who are attacking us. Second, Remember God's promises and plans as given to us in Scripture. We have been warned that the world would not love us. And we have been promised that God will not abandon us. That he will work all our trials for good. And that the glory that awaits us will utterly dwarf our present day sufferings. Remember, the Scripture must be fulfilled both the promises of suffering and the promises of glory. Remember these things in the midst of the trials and the persecutions as you walk the road that Jesus walked.
Third, sometimes it is best to keep silent before one's accusers. Proverbs 26, 4 warns us to answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But 26.5 also warns us to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he think himself unanswerable. So we are warned, take, you know, be aware, answering a fool is not a simple thing. And we can go wrong either way. But Jesus' example here is important to us because it is very easy to get so caught up in answering accusations and pointing out inconsistencies that we end up looking defensive and we lose sight of the big picture. Such arguments are likely to be fruitless as the accuser is probably subconsciously aware of all the flaws in his accusations and forearmed against any attacks he could launch. Your silence may give him the opportunity to display his attacks so clearly that any observers cannot help but see their absurdity even if he cannot. And that would be a victory for Jesus. Fourth, do not be afraid to declare who you are if asked. We are Jesus' witnesses. We are believers. It is for this that he called us, and no such testimony will go unrewarded, even if it costs us our lives. Now, it's one thing to say all these things, quite another to do them. How shall we receive the grace to answer our accusers peacefully, to rest in God's faithfulness, to keep silent when accused, to speak even if it should cost us our lives? Pray. While in Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray with him lest, he, lest they fall into temptation. While Jesus per persevered in prayer and won the victory, the disciples failed to pray and they fell. Pray for strength to stand in the trials. Pray for a clear vision of the joy set before us and the grace to be encouraged by it. Pray for a sense of the treasure that the treasures of this world are transient and, and seek God to help you to see things the way Paul does. That he assesses all of the glories of the world as trash next to the joy of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. And pray for fellow believers that suffer for the name of Christ. Pray for the families of the 11 believers in Aleppo, Syria, who were crucified and beheaded for their faith. Pray for the families of the students in Umqua Community College in Oregon who were shot when they were asked to testify that they were believers. Pray for those who are losing their jobs and livelihoods because they seek to follow Jesus and testify truly who they are and obey what he commands. Pray for yourself and for one another. And pray for the enemies of Christ who persecute the church, that they might see in the witness of those who testify that Jesus is in fact Lord, that they might be brought to repentance and faith in him, even as Paul, the accuser, was brought to faith in Christ. 
and pray that Christ would be glorified by his people as they seek to walk in his way through the darkness of a very dark world and that we would be the light God intends for us to be in this world, a light that cannot be overcome as we look with anticipation and we work towards that day when we receive from him the well done and good and you good and faithful servant for the joy that is set before us. I'm going to invite you now all to join me in prayer for a bit on just these issues, and then we'll close. A silent prayer, and I will close it. Father, we do see darkness all around us. Some places in the world, it is very dark. We see the darkness of betrayal, of ineffective defense, of abandonment, of injustice, of abuse, and it daunts us in some ways. It's terrifying to watch what happens in some parts of the world. And we struggle to know how to stand, Father, and I ask that you would help us by your grace to look on Jesus and be encouraged, <coughs> to look in Scripture and to be encouraged to be strengthened by the hope that you have set before us, by the example that we have in Christ and in his church, by other believers who stand firm in the trials, that we might be encouraged to walk faithfully before him, to shine the light that you have given us into this world, to testify truly, to take risks for his sake. Lord, it is not easy, and we need each other. Help us to pray constantly for each other, for ourselves, for this lost and dying world, for believers throughout the world who suffer for Jesus' name. Help us to pray that we might stand in that dark day, in this dark day, and that we might be found faithful in Jesus' name and for his glory and yours. Amen.